Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now here's your host, Jeff Udick. I'm super excited about today's episode. Uh, We have author Linda Flanagan on the show talking about her brand new book, Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids' Sports and Why It Matters. Jeff, so much comes up in this conversation. Listeners, I think you'll want to stay tuned for questions about what messages kids are receiving from adults in their life about what childhood is what opportunities we are providing or maybe what opportunities we're not preventing for kids to collaborate, to create their own free play. Um, And and again, just thinking a little bit more about if students have interests, how are we letting them really pave that pathway and not telling them what that pathway should be? So all of those things come up in today's chat. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciated, it made me, I guess, made me feel good is a lot of the conversations when I'm in front of parent groups, when I'm consulting with schools and do parent nights, uh, a lot of my same research that I have done through the years around parenting and how that's impacting students in schools, we're hearing the exact same conversation. And you'll hear Alinda and I kind of go back and forth about the, ex- we're seeing the exact same thing now in sports and, and how that is also impacting schools. And, and one of those things is around this idea of collaboration around joy, just kids being happy and having freedom to be happy, I think is something that really comes out to me uh, in today's conversation. You know, kids are so overscheduled today uh, and we as humans overschedule ourselves in 2022. How do we let go of that a little bit and just, you know, find a way to enjoy a little bit of life? Absolutely. I mean, what is what is it to be a young learner? That yeah. come that comes up, uh, and and Jeff sort of reminded you and I of the ways that we can help students learn how to collaborate without dictating what it means to collaborate. How we can provide perhaps like a rehearsal space, but not completely strip away agency. Right? Like we want to be supportive, not restrictive. And if only Trisha, you had written a free guide that helps support teachers with this. One of my favorite free guides uh, over in our library, Recalibrating Collaboration. And we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. Uh, And if you're part of the newsletter, it'll be in the newsletter as well. It's been out. It's one of the first ones I think you wrote. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about it? It's one of my favorites as far as just helping kids to understand you're in a collaborative group. There are things to negotiate in a collaborating group. There's things that you need to make sure people know about you in a collaborating group. Talk a little bit about what there's some of the other things you can find in that in that free guide. Yeah, thanks for the generosity and in, in what you have to say about it. I mean, we we were getting so many requests around, sure, we want to do more project-based learning. We want to do more things that are collaborative, but learners are telling us they hate collaboration. And so we wanted to provide some guidance that looks at, okay, well, why is that? how is it that perhaps we're asking students to work together without doing any any sort of work in terms of what are the skills that you need to collaborate and the reality jeff as you say that yeah sometimes we're going to be working with other people that we don't get along with but that is a lifelong skill and so the guide offers a bunch of different scenarios 
and students can rehearse them. And the point of the rehearsal is, like practice in the world of sports, um, let's take away some of the stress by running through it as a drill before it's a high stakes uh, assessment, right? Um, but also let's get playful with it and let's not, I think, oh, this is going to be difficult. So let's avoid it altogether. And, and that comes up, you know, Linda talks about that as well, that it's really important that young learners are having a variety of experiences, right? That we don't try to completely remove conflict um, because we we also learn from conflict. So that, that free guide, again, it's available. You can go to shiftingschools.com, click resources. You'll find our resource library. It's avail- available for you there with uh, 60 other free guides. And listeners, we're always, always, always taking requests. So you can reach out to Jeff and I at info at shiftingschools.com um, or at Shifting Schools on Twitter as well. Awesome. And that reminds me, we do have our Google Workspace uh, pathways are up on the website. We've got 11 of them now up there. And uh, the one that came to mind as you were talking, Trisha, is the one that you created on creating joy with Jamboard. Another great collaborative space we can have kids in where you could do rehearsals, rehearsals of how do you share a digital space? What does it mean? Negotiate you know, the screen when you're on a place with other people. So that is a pathway. Uh, They're on sale now over at shiftingschools.com along with the other 10 all around the Google Workspace app. But you might want to check out the one that Trisha just finished on creating joy with Jamboard. And it's got all kinds of resources. And I think there's, I don't know how many different templates that you give away in, in that training. So there's a bunch of stuff in there as well. So check that out. And again, I would say, you know, for anybody who listen who is listening, who uh, is a a digital literacy coach, those pathways are really powerful because, you know, Jeff, you've got a great one on Google Drive as well. And I know when I was a coach, you know, you have people that need support just starting off with these tools. And then you have other folks who are at the other end of the spectrum and they're sort of looking for some of the advanced skills and the power of those pathways is you can provide them for an audience who's going to access the level that they need and it's gonna free up your time to be having some more of those in-depth conversations around, again, the way that technology can really enhance learning. Yeah. And again, we've got 11 of them over there. That's at shiftingschools.com. You can check those out. We've got a bunch of them, but we are so excited that we were able to sit down today with Linda Flanagan around her new book, Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids Sports and Why It Matters. A great conversation about just where we are with supporting kids today. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. And with that, on with the show. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. I am here, of course, with Jeff, and our special guest today is Linda Flanagan. Linda is a freelance journalist, researcher, former cross country and track coach, a graduate of Lehigh University. Linda holds master's degrees from Oxford University and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and was an analyst for the National Security Program at Harvard University. Um, her full bio and, and link to all of Linda's resources will be over there in the show notes. But Linda, perhaps most importantly, I just need to let you know, thank you so much. I was recently at a family barbecue. And because of your brand new book, I had so much to talk about. Um, oh. And I probably appeared more intelligent than I, than I was <laughs> about uh, about you know the changes in youth sports. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, to- it's my thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. 
Great. So we're, we're here to talk about your new book. Um, and I think educators, this is a really interesting one to add to professional development libraries. So the book title is Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids' Sports and Why It Matters. It's out now. Um, and again, Linda, I have to say the book is only 242 pages. And just within that small space, you managed to wear so many different hats, researcher, accomplished athlete, experienced coach, and of course, a parent yourself. The book is really eye-opening in terms of just how quickly the world of youth sports has been transformed. And I'm wondering, um, originally, the story behind you starting the book, uh, did it come from one of those perspectives specifically, or, or what sort of was the, the seed of the idea for the book for you? Well, you know, I, it kind of bubbled up organically, I would say, both, uh, you know, I, I often wore the parent hat and the coach hat, like they were often in opposition to each other because as a parent, when I felt irrationally happy or ridiculously unhappy about my eight-year-old's basketball performance, I, I could identify in those circumstances with parents that get crazy and, you know, I start hyperventilating on the sidelines. I, I could appreciate how that happens. But then as a coach, when I was on the receiving end of, of some of that, and I thought, what is going on here? You know, uh, it, it made me kind of have this internal debate about what's what's important. And then also, you know, as a runner, and I go out and think about it when I ran, and I I have athletics have been such a big part of my life. I'm I still run. I um, I feel like they've I it's been a gift to be able to run, not only physically but mentally, emotionally, just in so many ways. And I thought what is going on here? So that's kind of, it was wearing really those three hats that got me thinking about what we're doing with youth sports and how we've gotten so off track. And I also thought about, you know, when I was growing up and uh, how my own parents dealt with sports and um, I'm sure like countless other parents like me, well, when I was growing up, my parents didn't do this and they didn't. And I, I think to myself that you know, they had too much self-respect in many ways. Not that these things were out there, but they had their own lives. They had right. responsibilities. I mean, they had, you know, volunteer, they were just busy doing their thing. And somehow there's been this, and I was very curious about how, well, how did we get here so that, you know, we're giving over our lives to our kids and dressing it up as if it's like in their best interest. So that's kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you you bring up in the book this idea that, um, and we'll talk about hyper parenting a little bit later on. The messages that young people are receiving when the adults in their life don't seem to have their own interests and hobbies and pleasures from adulthood, and I think that's that's really something worth talking about. And I appreciate that you toggle between all of those different perspectives because we need all of those perspectives in in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and alongside some of those anecdotes, you also have an overwhelming amount of research and data that you present in this book. It's sort of breathtaking. And again, at that family barbecue gave me some some fun things to point out. <laughs> oh, I'm very um, happy about that. <laughs> so yeah, folks, if you've got a family barbecue coming up and you want some conversation, this it's is a the great book. book. <laughs> yes. Um, on, on pages four and five, you highlight that in 2019, the youth sport industry was valued at just over 19 billion 
listeners, that's B, billion dollars, which surpassed the value of the NFL that year. Like my mind was blown by that. And your book, it, it goes into great detail about how money is corroding youth sports. We won't spoil all of the details of the book, but I'm wondering if you might just speak to a few of those big ideas about the corrosion that you think parents and caretakers need to think more closely yeah. about. Well, you know, because money is one aspect of it, money is one of the giant changes that have got us where we are. Um, if I could just mention the two others um, that I identify as one is the changed, um, our changed perspective on childhood, which is what I was getting to before about how you know, in the wonderful phrase that Jennifer Senior uses, um, children have moved from our employees to our bosses. Mm-hmm. And suddenly our lives revolve around pleasing them. And so how did we get here? But that is a change. That is different. As I was saying about my own parents, they had their own lives. You know, great. Good luck. Enjoy yourself today. Um, so that shift in in the way parents view their kids and the um what what kids can do for their parents, in effect, that is another giant change. And because athletics are so big in this country and so remunerative at the highest level and they report all kinds of status to parents, it's natural that youth sports would be affected. And the third big change is what's happening at colleges and universities where um, they're so expensive, so hard to get into, they become an overwhelming fixation. And then but here's athletics. It's a way in for some kids. Um, the academic standards tend to be lower. It's a streamlined process. So for those, the, is the money, the change nature of kids and colleges and universities have just made this such a fraught enterprise. Now, the, the, the downside of all this, apart from just the cost, is that, well, because sports are so expensive and community funding has declined for sports, We now have like a a class-based system of sports so that low-income kids just don't have the opportunities to play and are consequently, they they don't derive the health benefits that moderate sports can provide. Um, Something like 30% of kids in households uh, that make $25,000 or less are completely inactive. 30% of those kids. At the highest, higher levels, 100,000, dollar and up households, it's like 12%. Obesity rates are higher among low-income families. These, it's the, the, the very people who need activity the most don't have it because of the way we've set up our system or how it has devolved. I'm not trying to suggest that somebody set out to do this. It just kind of evolved this way. So it affects low-income kids. And on the other end, on the, on the middle and upper class kids, where most of the focus is generally spent, um, because of all the money and the status and the link to colleges, it, you know, it's changed the very nature of sports themselves so that younger kids are encouraged to play. Anyone who has kids knows this, like younger and younger kids are encouraged to play. Younger and younger kids are encouraged to specialize, to pick a sport and play it all the time. There's been this, you know, cottage industry of tournaments and you know, as a result, we've moved away from, if you go into high schools, it's really unusual to find a, a three-sport athlete where they used to be, you know, like they would yeah. move from sport to sport, but that doesn't happen so much. Well, the best athletes in my high school were three or four sport athletes. Like it yeah. was, they were the wide receiver, the point guard, and they yes. ran track, you know, exactly. <laughs> or just played yes. shortstop or whatever it was, you know, they were yes. three and four, you know, 
I just find it really fascinating because I think there's a couple of things when I'm talking to parents, I do a lot of parent presentations with school districts. Uh, and I talk a little bit about this idea that, and, and I love that you point this out. It's we, we got here and it's, it's nobody's blame of how we got here, but from a parenting standpoint, there is a lot of, I just call it social pressure, right? There becomes yes. this social pressure in your community to, yes. to parent this way. Yes. And the more social pressure there is, the more you find yourself in these situations where it might, you know, it might not be the best way to parent. And as you were talking, I'm sitting here reflecting, I played baseball through college, hmm. but I was raised on YMCA baseball, which you don't even have anymore. Mm-hmm. It costs nothing. The mm-hmm. coaches, one was my dad volunteered their time. You didn't pay a coach to go coach mm-hmm. eight, nine, 10 year olds. You yeah. know, we played T-ball together. It was the same group of kids in the neighborhood. We just grew up playing baseball together. But at the same time, I, I and I hadn't even thought about this until you were talking. My parents played Jack and Jill softball. Oh, and, and they played Jack and Jill softball and drug us along. And I love your idea of bosses <laughs> versus employees. It was the most boring thing ever. We would sit there, you know, we were seven, eight, and ten, and we would have to go every week. We're going to a wow. Jack and Jill softball game, and every week we have to go because mom and dad are practicing for softball. But for them, it, that was their athletic outlet. They loved playing softball together, right? As as a as as a husband wife and yeah. as athletes, they loved playing softball together. And we got drug along to all those practices, all yeah. of those games. But as I sit here and reflect is that part of the reason why I loved baseball? Like that mm-hmm. was part of my experience growing up was when I went to practice and I went to games, it was like mom and dad, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I got to be a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And as that continued, and even, but even in high school, like I played American Legion ball and I think it cost us, I mean, I, I felt bad. So I think it cost $120 for the Jersey is what it mm-hmm. cost to play American League. And I still went to college and played baseball. Like, I, yeah, I, yeah. I was, I'm of a era that we didn't have this, you know, privatization of sports yet. Um, But I think about that of we as children watched our parents be happy playing sports Mm -hmm. as employees who were bored out of our mind playing at the playground because they're all over at the park, you know, with all the other kids whose parents were playing, playing softball as well. And I just love that, that idea of what are we as parents putting forth to our children to say sports are really important, but even as an adult, I like to go run and you're yes. going to have to sit at home in front of the TV for a half hour and not get in trouble because I need a half hour run yes. today, or right. you're going to go running with me when you're, you know, when you can keep up or before yes. you can start beating me or whatever, you know, but I just, that is such, I think a, a critical part that I agree with you. You just, I just don't see that a lot anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, you want to model what y- you, you know, modeling is all what you're taught as a parent and it's true as a coach too. You want to model the way you want them to behave. So do you want to model adulthood as this like total drag and, you know, just driving around and sitting on benches all the time. I, I, and I also, this is goes to why I think we really, I would be so happy if more women stepped up to coach and I, and I understand why they don't or why, you know, it's a challenge and everyone's busy, but I think it's so good for girls to see adult women involved and interested in sports, because if it's only men, it's almost like, well, you can play sports when you're a girl, but when you grow up, forget about it. You know, it's like it, there's a cap on how long you can play. Yeah. And, for, you know, then so for women, it's about being thin or, you know, mm-hmm. going to studios to, you know, be, you know, be thin. And it's not about sports and fun and play and competition. It's 
for appearances. And I, I, I think that's another reason why it's important to have women coaches. And yeah. I, I, you know, you're, I like that your book goes further into that. Again, I, I'm just sort of shocked that the book is only 242 pages <laughs> because you cover so much ground. It's like the perfect example of, um, you know, an economically written book. Oh, um, well, again, you. so many takeaways. But, you know, your, your point about <laughs> I, it goes deeper than it's not just a, a drag for the family. You, you know, you talk about how not just the financial investment, how that's exploded, but the time commitment and the consequences that that actually has for the family unit and the family dynamics, which were, yeah. uh, that was that was really eye opening. Um, so that I appreciated you going into that as well. Well, you know, you just if it stands to reason that if you know parents are spending, you know, this one survey I, I looked at, nineteen uh, percent of the families were spending twenty hours a week or more on their kids' sports, and you know, like some, somebody's going to pay for that. There's, yeah. there's a, it, that's not for everybody in the family. If you have more than one child and you know, that, that's going to be felt. How can it not be? I mean, kids are so acutely conscious of any kind of, um, you know, vague inequity that's when you have this massive expenditure and amount of time that parents may be devoting to the athlete, it, it can't help but have an effect. Yeah. That's it right. And me- I, I was just thinking, I was going through my Facebook feed and I, there's a a friend in my Facebook feed who her son, I think he's nine is into all of the select baseball teams. And I don't know, they win champ, they travel everywhere and win Mm -hmm. championships everywhere. And I have that same feeling. I'm like, what are you, what is summer for, (laughs) for his younger his younger sister who's being drug all over the state of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, they go as far as ways Wyoming and it is constant. And she sometimes is even like on Facebook saying, I can't wait for summer to be over. And I'm just like, wow, we've gotten to this point where sure your son's winning trophies and he's winning championships. He's and he's in elite tournaments, playing baseball all over the Northwest up here. But at what cost to, oh at what cost to you can't like what happened to summer? I mean, for you as a parent, for you as a parent, there's no recharge time for his poor younger sister, who I can only imagine what that's like sitting in the car watching and then sitting in the stands watching brother play baseball week after week after week. I just, I'm the same way. I see that. And I'm just like, wow, it's so different. I mean, I played YMCA baseball where I remember being yelled at because we were picking dandelions in the outfield. I mean, (laughs) that's what we got yelled at because we weren't paying attention and we're blowing dandelions. Like, you know, yeah, but look at you, you played baseball in college, I know. you know, because you didn't have to develop every last ounce of your athletic ability at age six. Yeah. You you were allowed to grow into it. And that's, you know, it's, I I don't know this person, but you know, the nine-year-old is very, it's very possible that child will, you know, need uh, Tommy John surgery when he's 15 yeah. or just get so he hates it or just finally run out of gas. Gas. Yeah. It's not easy to maintain this for so long. Yeah. That it's, level. And I also think, you know, um, if you consider about the opportunity cost of what's, you know, and that child may be loving it and good for him if he does, but yeah, what the things you're not doing, you know, when you're just devoting yourself to one sport like that yeah. and you're not, you know, not forget about vacations, you know, but seeing your extended family or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I don't know, getting a summer job when you're a teenager, like there's all kinds of things that are lost and 
And I wonder how that makes kids feel when they are, again, when they are so much the centerpiece and, it's, yeah. you know, when, when he wants to quit, how's that going to go over? Yeah. Well, did you come across any research? Cause I just find this fascinating too. When I look at like some of our, some of the top athletes that you hear a lot about, and I'll use, because I'm in Seattle, I'll use Russell Wilson, right? Russell Wilson was drafted in as a baseball player and a uh, football player and even had a even had a scholarship to play basketball in college. So mm-hmm. he's like, I, I would consider him a top athlete in football today. But even through high school, he was playing multiple different sports. And you can talk, you can usually point to, I would say, a lot of the top athletes in every across genders, across yep. places that were were still, I would consider this two, three, or four, you know, sport athlete, even through yep. high school. Is there any research to show that actually being expanded across those makes you a better athlete? Oh, yes. Well, it's what the college college coaches want, the multi-sport athletes. Yeah. They want the kids who've been playing other sports because it helps them develop in other ways. It, it, it means they're more perhaps more adaptable. Mm. It also reveals this competitiveness. This is what some of the coaches told me, that you know, a kid who moves from sport to sport you know, there's a certain competitive streak that applies in each of them. Mm. And most importantly, there's more upside for that kid. If they haven't used up, again, every last ounce of their talent by the time they're 15, there's more room for growth. So, you know, the college coaches want the multi-sport athletes. Mm. And the other really interesting piece of data I came upon was that um, Olympic medalists are more apt to have been multi-sport athletes Interesting. than Olympic participants than those who just went, you know, so they're already talking about cream of the crop, right. but the very best ones tended to be multi-sport athletes. Yeah. And I just find that I think that's so important for, for all of us to hear and, and, and parents specifically who are thinking, Oh, I want my, my kid loves baseball. We're just going to do baseball all the time and be like, no, it's still good to go play flag football and do wrestling and do track and field and take a weekend off and go eat ice cream. (laughs) It's it's okay. Well, you know, and it also an advantage of that is, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really helpful for kids to, have the experience of not being the best at something. Oh, you know? yeah. So they're the great softball, a great baseball player. But then when they go over to the fall, maybe they're not great in soccer, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, that's fine. And it's, it's kind of, I think it's like a really healthy balance for kids to learn that it's okay. To, and now I get, I have a little more appreciation for the kids who aren't the best on the team. So yeah. they just kind of learn like about, learn, just broaden their horizons a little bit. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this term that you use in the book called hyperparenting um, and kind of what that is. And I know that the readers will appreciate your own reflection as a parent uh, and as a coach uh, inside the book. But can you talk a little bit about this idea of hyperparenting? Where do you think it's coming from? And what do uh, what do our parent and caretaker audience uh, need to know about about this idea? Well, you know, I mean, this is one of the, the helicopter parents or, you know, um, what's the other one? Snowplow parents, these terms that, you know, are bandied about. And, you know, I, it's just, I think all of us or many of us in who are raising kids now in certain communities, competitive communities, there are immersed in this world where the, the expectation is that you're going to do everything you possibly can to um, help your child get to 
whatever the next level is, it's always kind of bandied about in sports, like whatever the next level is, who knows, but to help them advance, to help them get into a better college, prepare them for life. And that it is, you know, there's this sense that it is our duty to, um, it's our moral responsibility to, you know, sacrifice and do everything possible. Um, As a result, that just means parents are more and more involved at every level. And um, I certainly saw this in, in cross country and track. Um, it's, you know, it's a, even if they don't want to be, I think many parents feel like they kind of have to be there and, and at, at games and, and races. And, um, you know, I, I think we've learned over the years that this is not helpful for kids. I mean, how many books have been written about this? Like it's not helping kids to have parents hovering and sitting on your shoulder all the time. It's absolutely true in sports. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I'm uh, much like you, I use running uh, to come bring this back to full circle and why even as adults, we need to be very active. I find running much like you do when I need a brain break, I go for a run and I came into running late. I was not mm-hmm. a runner. I ran because I had to, cause I was a pitcher in college and that's all we do is run, you know, that's why yeah, I right. but, but my wife wanted to start running and my wife started running. Uh, and within three weeks, she was running more than I was and faster than I was. Now she runs multiple, you know, she runs yeah. marathons and I'm just, I can barely keep up doing my three miles, but that's to me, the running is my place. Much like you, I go to think I, I, yep. I never wear earbuds. I don't listen to music. It's my unplugged time. And what the things that Me come too. out of my brain in those, like, I need to almost to take notes. Like that's the thing I haven't figured out is how do I take a notepad and pencil yeah. with me? because I forget more amazing ideas by the time I get home. A um, friend of mine does that. She brings a little notepad. With I know. I almost feel running. like I have to, cause I'm like, Oh, that's such a great idea. I have to remember that when I get home, it's much like a dream. And then I wake, I get yes. home and I'm like, what was that amazing idea that was going to you know, change the world? I can never remember what it was, but it is such, you know, just physical activity in general. But I think running is one of those that are, yes. I'm very much like when you were saying, I'm like, that's me. I just go for a run and just let the, let my mind do my yes. mind thing. And, yeah. you know, and I don't have well, earbuds in and do anything. I just, and that's it. why, you know, like I really wanted to make the point clear in the book that, um, you know, I am an advocate for sports. I love them. I love, you know, I think there's so, there's so many advantages that come with playing sports yeah. being active and health, you know, emotional, physical health. And that's why it's important that we do it right. And like, we're just, gotten it it's gotten out of whack yeah and the community piece too and and listeners i should point out that um linda has a whole bunch of solutions that she does point readers to at the end of the book both uh parents caretakers coaches to consider and um i think as a closing note it's it's worth pointing out that one of them is you know seeing athletics and sports as a space for joy and making sure that kids have autonomy in that i mean the three of us on this call probably grew up free play, meet you at the park, let's organize our own game. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, making sure that that kids have that as an opportunity, because that is so joyful. Um, and mm-hmm. and I, I really think you point to how we're robbing kids of a, a crucial, really joyful childhood experience when we're not just getting out of their way and saying, play, create your own game, you can mm-hmm. organize it yourselves. Yes, I know. I mean, it's it's just gone, we've gotten so far away from that. And yet, you know, the, the I believe the psychologist, Peter Gray, 
has written is, is kind of the authority on free play. He said that's where kids learn. That's where they yeah. learn how to get along with other kids, how to keep games fair and fun. It's like it's not about mollifying the adults on the sidelines. It's about figuring it out. They learn leadership and you know that's collaboration, what, cooperation. cooperation. Exactly. And I would say in education, one of the things we're seeing, like to bring this back to what is happening in the classroom, is we are having more and more educators tell us that when they put kids into groups of three or four to collaborate on a project, kids don't even know how to get started. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking like elementary kids. We're talking like middle school, high school kids. They mm-hmm. don't know how to get started in a collaborative project. Three, like three of us put in a project and they're just like, okay, the three of you, you know, figure out here's, here's the assignment. Here's what I need you to do. They don't know how to get started. They don't know how to negotiate those whose job is doing what, how are we going to organize this? And I think it comes right back to this conversation that Mm -hmm. when I was four, five, six, seven, eight, I played at the playground with a bunch of other kids and we had to play hot lava and figure out the rules of the game (laughs) and where the safe base was. And it's all this collaboration. And yes, this generation, very few, very few of this generation got to go out and do that play where you learn to collaborate with people that you just met at the playground or you meet yes. every Saturday because your mom and dad are playing Jack and Jill softball. And so you're trying to yes. figure it out, right? Whatever it happens to be. And now you're in high school, you're in a group setting and you don't know how to collaborate. You don't know how to negotiate the rules of this thing where, you know, we just got thrown into a group together and who's going to do what and what the timeline is. And and, yes. and then we, we're seeing that in the workplace as well. When, when we're now seeing, you know, uh, employers talk about, having difficulties with people working in groups. Yeah. And I think it really comes all the way back down to four, five, six, seven, eight, the ability to free play, learn, collaborate, negotiate, cooperate. And you you kind of dig through it at an early age. And those skills are built on over a lifetime. Yeah. Well, and I would add to that, that, uh, you know, coaches have a role here too, which is, and they can encourage more. I think it's really time, it's high time for coaches to be more collaborative with the kids on the teams, just like the classroom is moving that way. Yeah, There's absolutely more about, you know, child-centered learning that you dictate the terms of your education and do what you're interested in. And, you know, teachers are there to help facilitate that. I think coaches, the same applies with coaching. It's not that there isn't someone in charge, but it should be encouraging, um, leadership and input from the kids on the team. It's not just about the the person in charge telling them what to do. I think it, it all, that's part of the solution too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Linda, for a great conversation. Uh, again, the book is Take Back the Game, How Money and Mania Are Ruining Kids Sports and Why It Matters. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, we'll make sure again, that links to everything we've talked about, including the book uh, and everything else that you need to know is in the show notes. Linda, if people want to reach out to you, if there's a school district or a teacher that wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to, to contact you? Well, probably Twitter. Um, okay. I'm, my Twitter is at Linda Flanagan two, the number two. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to take emails too. It's okay. Linda at flanagansnj.com. Just the way it sounds. Awesome. NJ at the back. Thank you so much. We'll make sure all of that is in the show notes as well. Linda, thank you so much for being on Shifting Schools. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need. Thank you.